All right, so we are in this season thinking about what it means to move forward from brokenness to wholeness. And we're using these two tools we mentioned last week that are related, of course, the Beatitudes, and then this great Christian ministry called Celebrate Recovery, which is rooted in the Beatitudes. It's kind of like a Christian version of a 12-step recovery program, though they are focused on eight principles. So last week, we talked about the first Beatitude and their first principle. Um, the Beatitude was, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and Drew, you got the slide for that first principle for us, if you could put it up. Um, the first principle of celebrate recovery, realize I'm not God. I admit that I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life is unmanageable. Uh, and and we, we talked last week that this doesn't mean my life's completely out of control in every possible way, right? What it means is that I need help, right? I need God's help to get those most important parts of my life rightly ordered. Uh, I, I need Christ for that. So, um, John Baker, who's the guy who started Celebrate Recovery, has, um, I think, a helpful little illustration to capture that idea, kind of where we were last week and kind of where we're starting this week. So he says, as you probably know, Southern California doesn't get a lot of rain, and even more rare is that it would flood in Southern California, but um, there was a point where this happened a few years ago, and so um, there was a husband and wife named Glenn and Joanne. And they lived in a kind of a low area, and the floods came in, and um, it was so significant that actually Joe ended up on the roof of her house. And the Orange County Register sent a reporter out by boat to see what was going on. They saw Joanne on the roof of her house, and they said, can I come up and talk with you? She said, sure. So I guess this reporter was very agile, and they climb up on the roof, and they start talking. And while they're talking, Joanne's just watching these things float by. So they watch like a Weber barbecue grill float down the, uh, down the street. And then they see a, a golden retriever on top of his doghouse floating down the street. The dog's fine. That's, that's going to be okay. Um, and then they see a, an SUV floating down the street. And, and so they're talking and just marveling at this flood. Uh, and the reporter notices that there's like a hat floating right in front of the house. And it'll float um, like 20 feet downstream. And then the weirdest thing has happened, it, it would float back. It would float like 20 feet back past the house. And it happened like seven or eight times, and finally the reporter said, Joanne, do you have any idea what's going on with that hat? That is so bizarre. And she said, oh, that's just Glenn. He said that he was going to mow the grass today, come hell or high water. <laughs> Sometimes a groan is as good as a laugh, right? Okay. Uh, so the, the point of that story, right, is that sometimes um, we are going about our lives not realizing that our house is washing away, Right? Uh, and so we want to use this season as a time to sort of wake up and think about how we're called to move um, out of our brokenness into the wholeness that God offers us. So this day, I want to particularly talk about the beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, maybe you remember last week, we talked about what it means to be blessed. And we said blessed doesn't just mean happy, right? Blessed means in God's favor. And you can be in someone's favor even when your life doesn't feel particularly happy. But still, I think this is a challenging one, right? What does it mean that we are in God's favor when we're in mourning? Uh, a couple of things are going to help us as we unpack this. Uh, the first is that mourning doesn't necessarily mean mourning the loss of someone who has died. Uh, I think the implication here is that um, those who are um, mourning or in sorrow or in pain are somehow blessed by God. 
And, and C.S. Lewis talks about this a little bit, and I, I love the way he describes this. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I've been thinking about that a little bit um, because on Tuesdays, our men and women are doing a Bible study on the minor prophets. And I think we have this perspective, especially in the Old Testament, that God is very smitey, right? He likes to smite people in the Old Testament. Uh, and so it's really interesting to read the prophets because the prophets aren't just the stories of what God has done. They're also the stories of what God has thought and taught about what He did. And as I've been reading the minor prophets, um, this one theme keeps coming up again and again. Um, God sounds to me like a parent with his children trying to get them to behave. Now, I am sure that some of you have imperfect children. My children are perfect, and so I don't ever have any problems with my kids, but I'm, I'm sure some of you have imperfect kids. So um, just imagine for a minute, um, as a parent, when your child is doing something you don't approve of, let's just say hypothetically um, that they're hitting their brother. Just Let's just make something up. Um, and you say, hey, you know, uh, Jonathan, or whatever your kid's name might be, please stop hitting your brother. And they say, okay, and then they keep going. And then you say, no, 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 I, I really mean it. You need to stop playing that game. You need to stop hitting your brother. And they say, okay, I will. And they keep going. And then you say, hey, you're going to get in time out, and you're going to lose your screen time if you keep hitting your brother. And they say, okay, and they keep doing it. Well, at some point as a parent, what are you going to do? You're going to put them in timeout and you're going to take away the screens, right? Now, as I read the Minor Prophets, God sounds like this, right? I mean, you get the impression that God is desperate to avoid punishing people. And He keeps saying, you know, I'm not going to do it for one reason or for two reasons or for three reasons, but I guess four reasons I have to do something. Or he says, hey, I did a little bit of punishment because I'm trying to wake you up, but please, please come back to me. I don't want to punish you. I don't like it. And, and, and I get this sense that God is trying to say, hey, I just want you to wake up to what you're doing, to wake up and realize that, that the way you're living is destructive for you and for other people. And if you just stop doing that, right, I, I want your life to be good and joyous and whole. And so I really am compelled by this idea of God um, sometimes using pain as a megaphone to rouse us. And by the way, I'm not convinced that God always causes the pain. In fact, I think maybe most of the time He doesn't. Um, but God can use the pain to wake us up. Um, this can be silly little illustrations like, you know, your kids getting uh, in arguments with each other, or it can be bigger things. And, and I've shared with you before, I've had a couple of experiences of being involved intervention with someone who was um, deeply addicted to a, a chemical substance. And the whole idea of an intervention is really quite simple, right? We, we recognize that at some point, probably um, your pain will get to a, a level where you have to overcome your fear of change and make a shift. Um, but we don't want that level to be the hospital or the prison, so, um, an intervention is simply when you go and you sit down with someone you love and you say, I love you, and because I love you, I want to know, I want you to know how broken I think your life is, and, and here's the steps you need to go to get back on track. And, and, and literally, it is raising up rock bottom, right? I want this meeting with you to be the worst experience of your life, because if it's not, I think something else worse is coming. Uh, and, and I think, boy, that is exactly um, how God tries to work with us, right? That, 
that He wants us to overcome the lies we tell ourselves and our fear of change. And sometimes there is no other way to do that uh, than to use the pain of our world uh, and to confront us with it so that we um, start mourning, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. It's a really important verse. Listen to it again. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. What's worldly grief? Worldly grief is when um, I experience sorrow or pain or loss in my life, and I respond um, by hunkering down. I respond by blaming others or, or shaming myself or denying what's going on or covering it up or drowning out the other voices that love me. But godly grief is when I, I see the brokenness of my life and I say, God, I, I am broken by my brokenness, right? I, I want to be new. And I start to mourn that aspect of my life. And then we have this incredible good news, right, that those who mourn will be comforted. Uh, the, the second principle of celebrate recovery, um, Drew, would you put that up for me? Is that um, we have to earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to Him, and that He has the power to help me recover. Believe that God exists, that we matter to Him, that God has the power to help us recover. Um, this sounds a lot like the second step of AA, right? Which is that we came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And I think there's, leave that up for a second, there's three um, important components of this principle, right, that, that relate to um, our mourning. The first is believing that God exists, the second that we matter to Him, and the third that He has the power to help us recover. I want to talk about all of those a little bit. Uh, so, uh, thanks, Drew, you can take that off. The, the first one is um, that God exists. I know we need to talk about this a little bit, but I think it's kind of a given, right? I, I think it's kind of a given that God's out there. I know not everybody believes in God. I, I get that. But the vast majority of people do. And, and I am personally convinced that most of the folks that don't believe in God don't believe um, because they have a, a desire not to believe. What, what I mean by that is that there's something about their life or their lifestyle that is incompatible with the story of God. And so um, it produces a, a, a dissonance and it's easier to say, I don't believe in God, than it is to say, I have to change my life if God's really out there. Now, I know there are also people who have genuine intellectual objections to the existence of God, and that's awesome because I love those conversations because when you're really talking about it from an intellectual perspective, um, we're just talking about what's true or not, and I'm pretty convinced it's true, and I'd love to have that conversation with you. Um, but, but I think in general, um, this idea that God exists isn't one that we struggle with as much as the second piece of this. And the second piece of this is that we matter to Him. See, I think believing that God exists is easy. Believing that I matter to God is not. The children's Bible that we give away most often in our church is called the Jesus Storybook Bible, and I love it. It's a fantastic um, sort of rendering of the Scriptures for kids. And any children's Bible is going to take the original text and, and sort of tweak it a little bit and change it a little bit and make it more accessible. And I particularly like the way the Jesus Storybook Bible talks about um, the story of the serpent and Adam and Eve in the Garden um, of Eden. 
And so I want to just show you, we're going to listen to it, um, a little bit of that explanation of, of what the fall looked like. And I want you to pay attention to what the serpent says to Eve. We play that? As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste. That's all. And you'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some. And Adam ate some too. Ah, a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. I think that's so true and, and so powerful, right? That the lie that the enemy tells us that begins in the very beginning of our human story isn't that God doesn't exist. It's that God doesn't love us, that we don't matter to God. Why is it that all the ancient religions that were polytheistic and believed in all these different gods and goddesses, why did all of them um, have the sort of callous disregard for human life because this lie was written in our hearts, right? That God doesn't love you. We talk about the idea of original sin, and original sin is, is the theological explanation for the fact that um, somehow all of us are born imperfect. And I love the idea that, that we are born already affected by this lie, right? God doesn't love us. And, and I think... Uh, this lie is as dangerous as all the false religions and denials of God's existence. Um, it has some power because it is a little bit of a half-truth. Because right? there is horrible pain in this world. There is terrible suffering. And if you are human, you will experience that. Now, to different degrees at different times, but it's just uh, going to happen. And we know that God is all-powerful. And we know we don't know how, but he probably could snap his fingers and make it all go away. And he doesn't. I can give you a lot of good reasons for that. I can talk to you about free will and how God wants people to love him and not robots to obey him. And I can talk about the theological idea of privation being the absence of good. And we can talk about all the courage and hope that arise from our overcoming of obstacles in our lives. But at the end of the day... God can take it all away, and He doesn't. And so, 
part of the challenge of the Christian faith is to know, does God actually care about us? And it strikes me that what I'm looking for is not necessarily God to step in and snap His fingers and make all my problems go away. I think what I'm really looking for is a friend who will walk alongside me in the most difficult seasons of my life. Uh, a number of you are aware um, this was not a super fun week for me. My, my mom um, was in the hospital with atrial fibrillation and couldn't breathe, and it was pretty scary. And she's doing a lot better now, and I'm going to go home and see her tomorrow. But um, in the midst of that, I'm a, I'm, I don't like to be the person that needs help, right? I like to be a helper. I don't like to be the one who needs help. Um, but it became pretty clear that I needed some help and some prayers. And so um, I sent out some prayer requests to um, just a variety of people. And, and I was so blessed that nobody came and said, hey, you know what? This problem isn't real. Don't worry about it. Um, God's going to magically make it go away. Everybody came along and said, oh my gosh, Jim, we're so sorry. We love you. We're praying for you. We, we hope God's going to show up in a, in a special way. And, and that's kind of what I want from God, right? I, I want someone to come alongside me in my most difficult seasons and let me know that I'm not alone and let me know that um, I matter to them and let me know that, yes, God is working in all things for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. And yet, um, that I still have a role to play, right? That God still expects me to be involved in this process. So we come to the story in Exodus, and uh, I have to just imagine what it was like for the Israelites. So just put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Um, you have been living in, a, in a, the land of Egypt for several centuries now, so it feels pretty much like home. And we don't know how long ago, but certainly not months or years, probably at least decades ago, at some point, um, that situation turned negative. And at some point, probably decades ago, we moved from it being a difficult situation, you're foreigners in a foreign land, to you are literally enslaved. Uh, and it gets pretty dark, right? If you know the story uh, of the Exodus, you know that shortly before this, um, the Egyptian pharaoh instructs the Hebrew midwives to start murdering the baby boys when they're born. And if you're an Israelite in that moment, I'm not sure your question is, um, does God exist? I think your question is, where is He? Where is He? Like, where is this God that, that called our father uh, Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob and his son Joseph and did all these amazing things? Where is He? And we get this incredible moment where God shows up to Moses, and then He sends him back to the people um, with signs and promises and hope, and the people believe God and worship. And I want you to notice something. They believe God and worship before God does um, the work of salvation, right? He, he hasn't yet done a single plague on the land of Egypt. He hasn't parted the Red Sea. There's no pillar of fire or, or column of smoke. There's no Ten Commandments that have been given um, but, but they get this message of hope, right? And they believe God and they worship. And I think this is the critical component of our Christian faith, right? That when confronted with the sorrow of our lives, whether it is um, pain that we have brought upon ourselves or whether it is pain others have placed upon us, um, our calling is not to say that God um, doesn't um, care or that God will magic it away, but that God is aware and with us in our sorrow. 
and working for our redemption. Psalm 58, 56 verse 8 says, You have put my tears in your bottle. Each is written in your record. I love that. Every hurt, every disappointment, every bad thing ever done to us, every tragic consequence of our sin, every tear, God keeps a record. He cares about it all. And when Jesus comes and and proclaims His whole message, He says, I have come to preach gospel, good news to the poor, to set free the captives. And He says, Isaiah 61, verse 3, He quotes, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display His glory. See, Jesus says, this is why I came. My whole mission is that I would find people in mourning and comfort them, that God will not leave us alone. And, and it, it doesn't get any more clear than the story of Jesus, right, who is in very nature God, who leaves heaven and takes on the form of a human, who lives a regular human life for like 30 years before he ever does anything amazing and then has this incredible ministry and then dies on a cross for us and then descends into hell for us, all because um, God won't leave us alone. Because wherever we are, God will find us. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So we get this um, instruction Uh, Not only does God exist, not only um, does God um, care about us, that we matter to Him, but that God has the power to help us recover. And on some level, I think maybe this is a given, right? That if we recognize there is the God who hung the stars in the sky and raised the dead and raised Himself from the dead, then then surely God can fix my little problem. Um, But it strikes me as interesting that um, God's power to help us recover isn't just uh, an idea we get in the Bible. Uh, in fact, um, this is an idea that keeps coming up outside of Scripture as well. And maybe I've shared with you before, but one of the most impactful books I ever read um, was called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And he talks about how um, we form as humans habits and how um, those habits can be good or bad or even um, serious like addictions. And then he talks about how we can untrain ourselves from habits and addictions And there's a whole behavioral science behind that that is really interesting, uh, and I encourage you to read the book to find out about how that works. Um, But they hit a snag, and so he says this, uh, researchers began finding that habit replacement science worked pretty well for many people until the stresses of life, such as finding out that your mom has cancer or your marriage is coming apart, got too high, at which point alcoholics often fell off the wagon. Academics asked why, if habit replacement science is so effective, it seemed to fail at such critical moments. And as they dug into alcoholic stories to answer that question, they learned that replacement habits only become durable new behaviors when they are accompanied by something else. One group of researchers at the Alcohol Research Group in California noticed a pattern in interviews. Over and over again, alcoholics said the same thing. Identifying cues and choosing new routines is important, but without another ingredient, the new habits never fully took hold. The secret, alcoholics said, was God. Researchers hated that explanation. God and spirituality are not testable hypotheses. Churches are filled with drunks who continue drinking despite a pious faith. 
But in conversation with addicts, spirituality kept coming up again and again. A pattern emerged. Alcoholics who practiced the techniques of habit replacement, the data indicated, could often stay sober until there was a stressful event in their lives, at which point a certain number started drinking again, no matter how many new routines they had embraced. However, those alcoholics who believed that some higher power had entered their lives were more likely to make it through the stressful periods with their sobriety intact." God has the power to help us recover. Uh, and, and hear this, it's not that God will do it all for us, right? He's not going to snap His fingers and make your problems go away. Um, but God will journey with us, right? Uh, and when we mourn the pain and the sorrow and the brokenness in our lives, those things that we have done and those things that have been done to us, then God shows up, right? Uh, and And if we are willing to allow Him, God will partner with us and walk with us and give us the power to do that which we cannot do on our own. And this is the great hope of the Christian faith, that um, when we mourn, God will bring us comfort. Uh, Celebrate Recovery um, uh, has uh, amazing stories of folks that have been healed. I just want to read the end of one story. This is a guy named Nate. And um, Nate was, uh, uh, as a young man, diagnosed with clinical depression at a time when they didn't really know what to do about depression and how to help. And so, like many people, he found a way to self-medicate, and that got him into all kinds of chemical dependencies. Uh, Over time, he managed to get free of his addictions um, through great support from his family and church and celebrate recovery and Christ. Um, But that wasn't the end of his problems in his life, and so his depression, of course, continued, as did other significant challenges, and he writes about some of those, including um, early-onset Parkinson's disease and um, the the loss of several children through miscarriage, just a a challenging season in his life. Um, And and then he writes about that, and he says, "Um, I have a Savior who sees my tears and wipes them away. When I stumble, He picks me up. I am an example of the work that God is doing in the world and the grace He shows His children. I visit treatment centers in the community. I share my testimony in community workshops and church services, and I have encouraged thousands of people. I've had the opportunity to begin a recovery ministry, and I've seen more people come into relationship with Christ than I could have ever imagined. Now I am used by God to reach people all over the world. I'm helping break the stigma that surrounds mental health. While the world looks at people like me as deficient, my God looks at me as extraordinary. My diagnosis is not my identity. My identity. People question me on whether it's worth it. Um, I answer, my being a part of the family of Christ has made me a better person, a better husband, a better father, and a better friend. And while God has not chosen at this time to heal my body, He has healed my heart, a gift far greater. My body is temporary, but my spirit is everlasting. I am always growing, always changing, always moving forward by the direction of the one who works inside me. This is our hope, uh, that God will continue to bless those who mourn and comfort us with His grace and His promise if we would simply allow ourselves uh, to embrace our need of Him. So, uh, again, I'm not sure where you are in your life. Uh, 
I know this is relevant whether you are a believer or not, uh, whether you've known Christ um, for years and years or whether you're just at the beginning of that relationship. We all um, need the support that only Christ can give. So I'm going to invite you to, again, just bow your heads and, and say a little prayer with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are mindful today of um, the painful way that sometimes you must shout into our deaf world. We are mindful today, Lord, that uh, your desire is never to bring us pain, but only to bring us to wholeness. And um, yet the, the lies and the deceptions that we place upon ourselves and that others place upon us so often keep us from hearing you unless you shout. So we pray, Lord, that uh, today you would give us ears to hear what you are saying to us. We pray that today, Lord, um, we could recognize the brokenness in which we live and the world around us, and you could give us hearts that mourn, not a, a worldly grief that leads to death, but a godly grief that leads to repentance and salvation. And as people who mourn, Lord, we pray you would give us that extraordinary comfort of knowing that you exist that, you, that we matter to you and that you have the power to help us recover. And so we place our lives in your hands today. And we ask Jesus again that you would show up and that you would walk with us and that what the world sees as deficient, we would begin to see as you do as extraordinary and that you would move us forward with you today. All this we ask in the amazing name of our Savior, Jesus the Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.